0: And I'm Norma. And we're Black, Black Girls, Girls with Accents. And welcome back, guys. Hello, everyone. We are so pleased today to have Vanessa Waters, acclaimed author and playwright, journalist, world traveler. Well, Vanessa, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hi Tracy. Hi Norma. It's my pleasure.
0: So we are re- we were so excited uh, when you agreed to do the podcast because you have a fascinating story. So clearly, by the accent, we know that you are also from the UK, but you've travelled uh, many continents. So, did your work as an author? Um, uh, necessitate that kind of travel what prompted you to leave the UK and to travel to so many different places
1: well it's funny because I'm not really that much of a traveler um I wasn't the sort of person who just I'm not the sort of person who just gets up and needs to go on a plane and go somewhere I don't have the wanderlust um (laughs) the first time I traveled I was 18 Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, and I think that was, I didn't travel much, um, but I did do uh, law and French law where, so that sort of began my traveling, if you like, because I I had to do the the year in Paris. Right. Um, And then after I graduated, I just, you know, went applying for jobs. I went back to Paris to work. Um, So I worked in Paris for another year. Um, And then... I returned to the UK after after working in Paris. I was working in the UK, and then um, I also I always sort of wanted to work in France again. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't like an issue for me to to work in Paris. I guess the good thing about going back to Paris straight after I graduated. Was that I got more fluent in French. Okay. Um. So I worked. So, but I didn't go back for a while. I was in the UK for pretty much the rest of my twenties after that. But then I went back to Paris, um, and I'm a. I was a journalist. I sort of still am a journalist. But I got a job for uh, Thomson Reuters in Paris mm. and uh, went back there. Um. Then after that, so I had gotten engaged just before going to work in Paris. Um, and my um, fiancé at the time, he, uh, he was in the UK, but he worked in emerging markets. So he had to, you know, move around. So he was in, he moved to Dubai uh, for a bit. And then, um, then I moved to Indonesia with him um so yeah we were in indonesia in jakarta for about a year oh wow um and then i uh, i came back he stayed in jakarta for a bit um and then after we got married we were actually supposed to go back to indonesia but that was a time of like um uh, uh, uh crashes the market crashed around that time
0: definitely
1: and so you know everything Everything changed uh, in terms of Indonesia. You know, they were building, uh, his company at the time were building a bank in Indonesia. Mm. So you can imagine that uh, the loans all dried up. Oh, yeah. And um, Indonesia was no longer working out. So we were back in the UK. Um, And then I gave birth to my first child. And uh, soon after that, my now husband said, do you want to moved to Nigeria or he sort of said, How do you feel about moving to Nigeria? And you know, I think it was that thing where, you know, you're breastfeeding, like your body's full of oxytocin. So (laughs) even though I'd never been to Nigeria and I'd never been, you know, like the I'd only been to sort of Morocco in Africa at all. So I, I was like, yeah, sure, fine, why not? You know, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Let's go try that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then Nigeria was uh, almost eight years. Oh, wow. So that was a big commitment. And, um, and I've been here in the U.S. for three years um, because eventually the optimism dried up in Nigeria as well. Yeah, um, so after about, you know, seven years in, um, the oil price dropped and, the, you know, the optimism in Nigeria dried up too. So um, our next move, we could have gone back to the UK, um, but my husband felt that the US was a better market than the UK. The UK going through Brexit mm-hmm. at that time, a lot of uncertainty so we ended up back we ended up here in New York, and i've been here three years
2: and so how can, tell me how it felt to be a black woman in all those different places so Paris and jakarta now and then Nigeria and now new york how did this
1: um paris in paris what i didn't like about Paris being a black woman is that the um I feel like the stereotypes about black women are more in your face there. Mm. You know, it's not quite Italy, but it's somewhere between Italy and London. So, you know, I would get a lot of the time men coming on to me. Mm. Um, Not, you know, not young, good-looking men. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, old... Mm. You know, old white men, old uh, Arabic men, mm-hmm. and you know, my only, all I could think is that they have a sort of assumption mm. about what I'm open for because there's really no reason for those men to be talking to me. Yes, right. we're not the same age, right? We're not the same background,
0: right?
1: You know, you don't we're not the same? You know, you're and you're a taxi driver I didn't meet you at work you know what I mean (laughs) so I felt like I felt quite insulted a lot of the time by their overtures and in a way it made me make myself a bit smaller Hmm. you know in New York I'm not afraid to wear anything I want to wear I'll wear hot pants if I want you know I'll wear a midriff top if I want Nobody cares in New York, you know. You can go about your business. The most you'll get is like someone giving you the eye or whoo-hoo, you, yeah, hey right. <laughs> right, you know. Hey, girl. You know, it doesn't... It, it feels a bit more carefree than the attention I got in Paris. So I would deliberately dress down. Mm. Um, I I deliberately didn't wear makeup and I deliberately didn't want to give them any excuse to, you know, be talking to me in a way I felt was sexualized and right. inappropriate. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, so yeah, so that was Paris. I also had some issues at work. Um, again, it was an assumption that I shouldn't be there. Um, you know, a lot of the time I didn't ever have this, at, in a corporate environment before I'd worked uh I had worked in a corporate environment um on and off during you know uh, summer holidays or whatever yeah and um I guess this was my first oh no when I worked in France it wasn't so bad but I think I was younger then the first time I worked for Societe Generale which is a French investment bank Mm-hmm. And I was young, you know. I was straight out of university, so you can take a lot more shit when you're straight out of uni, right? Because you don't know anything, right. right? You don't question it so much, right? But you know, when I was thirty now, and I was working for Thomson Reuters, and I'd been in journalism for years, I really I got a bit hurt that constantly there were uh, sort of nasty questions. About my competence Mm. and it seemed like people jumped on it straight away. They didn't sort of give you a chance. Um I was um I felt like I was embattled almost the whole time Mm. that I was there. Um it wasn't a nice experience. Um I I mean some of it is just journalism. I've always found working in a media room. To be completely cutthroat
0: right um
1: so I think I was just an easy target, but I definitely think they used my blackness against me in terms of feeling more justified in having a go,
0: right. you know giving
1: right. me the worst shifts right um, et cetera. um constantly howling. About this, that, or the other, because also, I mean, also, I was, I was uh, in French. I was working in French, so you know, it was, it was easy, I suppose, for them to find something. You know, I hadn't translated something quite the way they would have translated it. You right. know, so right. it, it wasn't the best experience. Um, just good for the CV, I guess. Mm. So, um, I. I, I left from there to go to Indonesia and in Indonesia, I found, um, I really enjoyed my Indonesian experience. I mean, I was, I felt I was a novelty, right? but I didn't feel, I didn't feel negative. I didn't, I didn't feel as the sort of, um, the sort of racism where people have you stereotyped as a certain kind of person. Now, I know a lot of people say they go to Asia and they get horrific racism, like people making monkey noises at them and people kind of refusing to serve them Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But I didn't have any experience like that. Okay, I did have stairs. Right. But the stairs didn't feel like, uh, didn't make me uncomfortable. I just got that. I was probably the only, maybe the only black person they'd seen that day. But also, they have black people in Indonesia.
0: Right.
1: Technically.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, depending on the definition of black. Because they have um, Afro-Asians right. um, living, uh, you know, the East Timorese. Timor is part of Indonesia. They're all black people there. Okay. And right. uh, Papua... Um, and some islands around there, they actually have um, a lot, a large black population. And so I didn't necessarily feel like they hadn't seen black people before, but I definitely attracted a lot of attention and I didn't really see any of these black people around in jakarta the capital city i did occasionally see one or two but other than that not many hardly any black people at all and you you know i made a couple of.
0: what's that no go on i'm gonna ask you a question when you finish your your point
1: yeah you know i made a few friends i did salsa i you know i got out and about um and um And, and it was fine. I really liked Indonesia and I was able to travel to Singapore, which I loved. And there's loads of black women in Singapore. Um, I was able to travel to Malaysia, um, where again, I didn't, I didn't even feel like I got stairs in Malaysia. I, it was just felt, I just felt like they were used to people like me in Malaysia, um, so, yeah, I, I I enjoyed Indonesia. I enjoyed being around Asian people very much in Indonesia. And I felt like I could live there. I felt like I could really live in Indonesia. I could live in Singapore. I could live in Malaysia. The only problem is that it's so far away from wow. family and not just in distance, but the time zone is like you wake up they're getting ready for bed so you know it's very difficult to communicate with family in real time and that was very isolating right
0: right so my question actually was going to be about um um this kind of your your feeling of the physicality the um the lived experience there my question was going to be did you find it freeing in some way because I would imagine being in a different society, culture, you are somewhat removed from the the day-to-day shenanigans that the, that we have to deal with in the U.S. and in the U.K., <laughs> and that you could really focus on yourself or your family um, and not get bogged down bogged down in the in in the politics of the day. So, so did it did it kind of give you a sense of freedom yeah. in a way?
1: Oh definitely, I definitely didn't feel like the people I was around had had a consciousness of western racism mm-hmm. like a, a and and again that's just my experience because mm-hmm. I know there'll be a ton of people who'll say they had you know they had the same or worse, but I personally did not feel like the people I interacted with. Had a consciousness of Western racism, it wasn't. It wasn't on their radar. Um, and you know, when Indonesia, well, Jakarta is a little bit like Lagos in that a lot of the people that you will meet, um, they've got they're not reading Western papers, mm-hmm. newspapers. They're not, you know, they're not following. You know, uh, they've never, they don't care. They've got different concerns. So their understanding is more sort of, you know, it's it's different. It's right. not that they're not racist or they can't be racist, but it's just different, different triggers, right. you might say. I know that Indonesia had a big problem with Nigerian fraudsters, um, so they claimed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I was warned that I should walk with my papers at all time um hmm. unless I got you know cuz sometimes they might do a sweep hmm. and there's but there's certain areas where things like that are more prevalent like Chinatown um there's areas where there will be those triggers and you might get stopped uh, targeted racially profiled or whatever um, so, it's, you know, it's um, it happened, but it didn't happen to me, me um, at all. Let me ask you about... Uh, Nigeria
0: was... Can I, can I just quickly ask you about class? Do you think that, because I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, were there any students from West Africa or other parts of the continent?
1: Um, Not in not in jakarta that i saw i didn't really see groups of black people in jakarta it's like you might see a lone black person who let's say could be i guess a westerner
0: Mm. um
1: or could be from africa but you didn't really see groups of people now as i said that's just where i was now class wise um i you know, I didn't think it mattered. The reason why is because Indonesians are a bit more like Nigerians in that they differentiate their class in their society by how they dress. Mm. So, you know, you'll be, you'll be uh, classified by your bag, the bag that Mm. you're holding. Mm. They're really into brands. They're really into designer labels Mm. and expensive shoes and very coiffed hair and lots of makeup okay. so a lot of the time I wasn't taken for like an upper class or elite sort of person because you know how I look now like for example in my video that you just have been watching right I am that after being in Nigeria for eight years being influenced by my fellow Lagosians <laughs> who wear makeup every day and right. do my hair but when I lived in Indonesia that was alien to me I hardly wore makeup. I wore, you know, the usual Primark clothes. Right. I mean, I still do wear the <laughs> Primark, Primark clothes, but I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't have designer labels. I didn't wear high heels. I didn't. My hair was natural and mm. it was shortish. I, I, you know, I was mistaken for a nanny a couple of times, and mm. I took the local bus a couple of times, um, but I never felt like I was treated. Worse, if you see what I mean. I didn't feel like, okay, now they think I'm poor, they're going to really treat me like a black person. I didn't feel like I was treated differently.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It was still,
1: yeah, it was still like, people in Indonesia I found to be very nice, and I definitely felt like they have more grace with each other as a society. You know, people don't honk when you cross the road slow. (laughs) In Jakarta, they wait for you to drop you know people like if I'm walking past and there's a group of men doing building work they don't look at my bum or you know holler or start to laugh you know I felt like there's just a bit more politeness Mm -hmm. in society so perhaps that's why I didn't feel such a negative experience I feel like they're nicer to each other then I see people being in, for example, New York.
0: Right, right. Fascinating, fascinating. So now you leave there and you go to Lagos.
1: Yeah, so Nigeria was great. I mean, it was just great to be... It's wonderful to be black in Nigeria. um, But, you know, class is is the thing Mm -hmm. that you have to... Um, worry about Um, you know how much money you have is a thing that you have to worry about in Nigeria you know that is the colour of your complexion in Nigeria (laughs) is how much money you have in your pocket or how much money people think you have Mm. in your pocket so in Nigeria to look foreign is money you know to have a British accent is money Um, and then you know if you dress a certain way that also is money and that's what people care about is how much money they think you have when people talk about your class they mean can you afford to maneuver in this group of people but when people say you're not in my class in nigeria they mean you can't afford to sit here Mm. with me (laughs) Mm -hmm. you you know that that's sort of what they mean by by class there is, it's just money. How much money do you have? A university professor, I'm sorry to say, Tracy, it's not worth that much in Nigeria <laughs> unless you're also earning in US dollars. Yeah, I heard, so I heard. <laughs> <laughs> so is
0: it's, there a lot of pretending? I'm you know, oh, you know, oh,
2: sorry, sorry, Vanessa. Huh? Is there a lot of pretending? of being pretending yeah like of being of class oh yeah yeah. i mean
1: yeah that's something which i'm writing about now is like how important the facade is yeah um the facade is all all important you know there's a lot of taboo subjects around money in nigeria which i found quite interesting and sad so for example people don't talk about illness so much because people understand that Healthcare in Nigeria is ridiculously expensive. Mm. And part of that expense is being able to afford to leave Nigeria Mm. in order to just have like a routine, you know, a routine procedure, um, which we take for granted. And so I think there's a lot of sensitivity around talking about, um, sickness, um, in Nigeria, because sort of recognition of the fact that it's, it's, uh, you know, when people are sick, it's often because they don't have enough money. So it's like, if you talk about being sick and not being able to fix it, it's almost like you're asking for money. Mm. You know, it's a weird, it's a complicated thing. Um, So that's a taboo subject. Um, You know, there's, Travelling is a taboo subject in some ways because if you can't travel, it sort of implies that you cannot afford to travel. Mm. And so the extent to which you can travel becomes a sensitive issue. So people will often pretend that they've travelled. Oh. And, <laughs> you know, people will pretend that they've travelled You know, I even had a conversation with an Uber driver where he was, obviously, you know, he was telling me he didn't like, he didn't like Canada. He said, no, he didn't like the UK, he said. He said he'd been there and he didn't like it. It was an awful place and he wasn't going back. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of let it slip that he'd been deported, but he didn't mean to tell me that. (laughs) So it wasn't that (laughs) It wasn't that he didn't like right. the UK. It was that he he wasn't able to stay there. And then he was saying, I think I'm going to go to Canada next. But it was kind of like this, I'm the same as you, you know, the tra- I travel too. Yeah. And that's like a big deal for people to try and appear to be on a certain financial footing. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad to see um because poor being poor becomes a a, a, like as a stigma it becomes a stigma in the way it isn't in the UK right um or in New York you know in the UK I think it's fashionable to cry poverty Mm -hmm. you know it's fashionable to say oh man I'm broke this month or I'm broke in general or You know, I'm just, uh, I'm an everyman, you know. We're struggling with these horrible elites. You know, I'm on the right side of political correctness because I'm not wealthy. Right. Whereas in Nigeria, it's seen as more like...
0: A failure. uh,
1: You shouldn't say that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You shouldn't, you should say the opposite, that you are wealthy and you should shout about how wealthy you are and the places you're going to and the places you've gone. And, you know, I, people who knew me in Nigeria, they quickly got that. I'm not like that. Um, but I, I could see that, you know, these topics were sensitive, sensitive topics, you know, very sensitive topics.
0: Wow. That's fascinating. So, You mentioned the book you're working on now, but let's just back up a little bit because your first book with Rude Girls came out in the mid 90s. And that's actually um, it's important to note that at that particular time, you could literally count on your hand the number of, in quotes, contemporary um, writers of African descent in the UK of Caribbean parentage. Um, so can you talk a little bit about your first work? What informed that? What shaped that? I mean, you're working within a, in a tradition of um, black British literature, but was still very much in its infancy. Some people would have called it the second wave, but there weren't really enough text to even, you know, enough other published works to even call it a second wave, in my opinion. So it's quite fascinating that you were part of I call the first wave, actually, of black writers in Britain writing?
1: Um, so I don't, I, I wouldn't really say I was part of the, the first wave. Um, just because, you know, I was working as writer in residence for Kensington and Chelsea, and I was, part of my remit was to research. African and Caribbean history in London and I came across quite a few books that were written like in the 60s published in like the 60s and 70s right um a lot of them were like political Mm -hmm. um and um I felt like that wave came with like the West Indian Gazette you know the start of the West Indian Gazette Mm -hmm. and the you know that led to there were a few newspapers around that at the time I would say that was the first wave because a few books came out of that, um, and then I do agree that there was sort of a drop off. There seemed to be like a drop off right. when those people that first wave kind of uh, ended. There was a drop off, and then, yeah, um, then yeah. So probably I was part of of a second wave. A because bridging when I came up with like express books, right? Um, and there was. Uh, uh Leonie Ross mm-hmm. um and um you know Andrea Levy Carol, and Carol,
0: Carol Phillips and,
1: and... Mm-hmm. Jay Newland
0: mm-hmm.
1: and Alex Wheatle right. and you know it's funny because Alex Wheatle's first book came out when Rude Girls did. So you know we were on the the book reading circuit together a lot mm, and we became awesome. fast friends. Mm. Um he's one of my best friends now. So, yeah, um, it was, you know, it came up accidentally. I've always written. I think we discussed this, Tracy, about always writing um, at a young age. Um, So it just came naturally to me to write this book. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a very small girls' school, which I got a scholarship to, where I had a very supportive um, uh, headmistress. So, you know, it soon got to her that I had written this book and she asked to see it. Um, and she, her nephew was a literary agent. Oh, wow. And so she, she passed it to him. And, you know, basically he liked it enough to work with me on it and we got it published. Um, so I was literally writing a book about the kind of things... Me and my friends like to do like come up the back of like the Sweet Valley High books. Oh my gosh, which yeah. I loved. Yeah, me um, too. Me too. You know, and the Saint Clare's books yes. and the Saint Trinity's books, and yes. you know, all of those books. Right. I think that was my my contribution was like me and my friends, what we like to do, and even like add, throw in a little bit of fantasy, like if we could go a bit further what we would do right, <laughs> and right.
0: that was that was good girls yeah wonderful so you mentioned your next so that I know that you're also a playwright um, but you mentioned your next book which is in in part shaped by some of your observations from living in La- Lagos
1: yeah because I realized that um so while I was in while I was writer in residence you know I wrote a very short book called Smoke Othello which was about uh, African and Caribbean history in West London. And, um, you know, like, per the title, um, you know, in the 18th century, if they used to see a black person, they would say, Smoke, Othello, because that's sort of what they knew. And it was like, holy smoke, there goes Nodello. Anyway, it was, um, it made me realize, like, when I was writing that, I got very into psychogeography, which is how the environment of a place shapes you mentally and shapes Mm. a community. Mm. And that, you know, I think um, being into that and then Rude Girls was about, you know, North London, like Hackney. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the Mecca in North London. Right, Um, It made me realize like I'm quite into places.
0: Right.
1: Um, And so, you know, writing about Lagos it didn't come straight away but I think I was so impacted by Lagos and by the people I met there and uh, just how the experience of being in immersed in a very different type of society you know impacted me and sort of trust trying to sort of it was my it's my way of like processing all of it i i i would say to anyone that you know they uh nigeria i feel like as a society i would compare it more to somewhere like pakistan than to london mm-hmm. because you know don't be fooled by the fact that you know english is the lingua franca people have their own languages they have their own um spirituality, they have their own ways of dressing, they have their own rules for how to live, their own rituals, um, and they have their own traditions and history which they really do identify with Mm -hmm. um for the most part. So, you know, you you know, English alone doesn't enable you to navigate that. Right. You have to really learn and understand and listen. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult actually in some ways trying, you know, once you've left the sort of expat pool to, you know, develop real friendships and meaningful friendships and being part of life. You know, I'm lucky in that my in-laws were very sort of cosmopolitan. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, they, you know, they they weren't especially traditional. Um, So in a way, they were a great bridge for me to access, um, you know, more sort of traditionally Yoruba communities Mm. or traditionally Igbo communities, Mm -hmm. um, um, et cetera, or northern communities. But, you know, those are very... Those are very different places, you know. It's where you're expected to bow to Mm -hmm. people who are senior to you, either in status or in age. Right. And, you know, there's rules about how you touch people, Mm -hmm. like how you greet people uh, with touch. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, uh, how, you know, whether you must stand when certain people come into the room or not, um, whether you need to cover your head. There's a lot of... It's a minefield. It's a minefield. And a lot of that was exhausting and um, gave me a lot of anxiety. (laughs) Um, But it was an amazing privilege to be allowed in.
0: Right. Beyond
1: the expat pool, to be trusted in to observe and to you know be able to go to so many weddings Mm. um and to um be invited into people's homes like to be able to celebrate Eid
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um in someone's home and you know that you're there while the ram is being killed Mm -hmm. and you get to see the whole process and then afterwards, you, you dance with your friends and the old men, they spray money. You know, it's all of that is a real experience. Right. Um, and, you know, it's fantastic. Things that I will never, ever forget.
0: Right.
2: I'm, I was, um, I'm going to tag on to that because my question for you was like, what, what are some cultural differences between the U- black community in the UK and the US? And so I love that you touched on how it was in Lagos and also going to ask, is there anything that you took from all those places and like implement in your home, like some of the cultural traditions or differences that you're like this we keep because I want that to be part of like your own legacy. Um,
1: so what I've, what I've realized, and I'm, I mean, it's an obvious thing. It's just, perhaps I kind of took it to heart a bit more was that, you know, the heart of culture really is food. And food is so tied up with identity and and a feeling of safety and a feeling of home and tradition and uh, a feeling of... And and, and and not a feeling, but a process of liberation and empowerment. So, you know... Cooking traditional food for my children is very important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, understanding, like respecting my own Caribbean, Jamaican culture more and understanding it more because, you know, Jamaican culture comes from its history, has its own traditions. Um, It's not a restrictive culture, As in you can do what you like, but there are ways of being that we have. And, you know, it put me on a quest to really learn, learn about my history and to speak more to my elders and to understand the mindset um, and to understand, um, you know, how what we have about our culture that is fantastic. Um, what I like about Jamaican culture compared to, let's say, some Nigerian cultures is that I, as a woman in Jamaican culture, I'm very free. I can speak when I like. I, there's no hierarchy of how I can speak. I can say what I like. I can wear what I like. Yeah. And doesn't mean some Jamaicans are not very conservative. And it doesn't mean some Jamaicans, you know don't sort of revere elders right. uh, in similar ways to have Nigerians revere elders but you know on the whole you can choose to do that or you can choose not to you I'm very free and I appreciate that freedom and I think I make the most of that freedom now that I am no longer in Nigeria um, it's made me more aware of how different cultures look at racism mm-hmm. and I think there's a tendency to be really stuck in your own understanding of the world and your own understanding of like identity as framed by, you know, where you've grown up. And I think we see it a lot with African-Americans um, in that it's, it's an extra leap for them to understand like black people in the UK You know, they have, um, you know, they have a a history of racism and, you know, what was their history of racism? How has it impacted them? How has it shaped British society? Um, They have to understand when they go to Paris or they go to the UK, you know, suddenly they think, oh, this is great. You know, ha, ha, hee, hee. You know, I'm having so much fun. I'm Josephine Baker running down the uh, (laughs) the Champs Elysees. No, you know, there's oppressed peoples in Paris. You are not Josephine Baker. You know what I mean?
2: Absolutely.
1: They. uh, You are not James Baldwin in Paris. You are not Frederick Douglass in London. You you know, there is actuality of racism that people are experiencing in those places. And being having lived in many places, I feel like I'm more tolerant of other people's understandings. I feel like I'm more tolerant of, you know, a lot of Nigerians who said, and I think some Caribbean people who've said, for example, they didn't know they were black until they were 14, or they didn't know right. they were black until they traveled. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was a lot of the time those people were denialist about racism. Mm. Um, and understanding that experience, I think is has been healthy for me to not, not just feel like um, so downhearted in a way about my own experiences of racism, like from the UK, or thinking that, you know, it's all a certain way or it's just racism that we have to think about you know there's so many other things that like class issues in Nigeria it works as a kind of apartheid Mm. and you know that is more important to people in Nigeria or for example gender discrimination is more important to women in Nigeria than racism is to me in Nigeria I mean, then racism is to them in Nigeria, and even when they travel, the way they've grown up is that those things are more important. And, you know, that apartheid of wealth is going to press upon someone's mind more than issues of race which are occurring to them. They are occurring in Nigeria, but they may not be as conscious of them, or they may not feel those issues are as pressing because those other issues are more determinative of how they live and their chances of survival. So, you know, understanding, we, we're we all interpreting things differently. I think it gives you perspective as a writer. It makes you less angry about things. Um, and you. I strive for understanding. Maybe I listen more and mm. I read more. Rather than thinking, I know what it is, and I know what the answer
0: is. Excellent. Does that makes sense. Yes, it, it does. does. So interesting. <laughs> so my question for you then is: so with all of that, how do you how do you position how do you then position yourself here in America? Right. So going back to what you just said about um, mm-hmm. presumptions, the whole idea of. Mm-hmm those of African descent or Black Americans going to Europe and feeling free and feeling that they don't have the, you know, the boot of racism on their neck, right? Because that's a kind of a, a wishful thinking or a kind of, um, what is that, a blind optimism kind of attitude, obviously. Yeah. Um, so how do yeah. you, because Norma and I have spoken quite a bit about perspective and how our perspectives are quite different than those, um, of, of the people we knew who were born and raised here. We just, just see things a little bit differently. So have you come across that? And given that you, again, have, have lived on a number of continents, have you found yourself um, the only one in, a, in, a, uh, in the room with a totally different perspective on something that might be racial or cultural? Have you found that? And if so, how do you handle that?
1: Well I think sometimes I forget because i most of the people I do hang around are because I live in Park Slope. most of the people who I find I interact with you know uh, they are academically they're well educated mm. um they are people who are lawyers writers um they're psychologists they are um High flying people in their fields, and sometimes I'll make assumptions of them as if they're also like really internationally exposed or internationally well traveled, um, which often they're not because you know they might think people might think that okay if I spent four days in Venice um, and I've spent I had a long weekend in Paris. <laughs> And, you know, then there was that week by Lake Como (laughs) that they think that means they're well-traveled, but that's a very superficial understanding. And often those experiences are presented to them in Western,
0: you know, as
1: Western experiences in foreign countries. Curated. Um, Yeah. Yeah, they're curated, curated experiences. So often I'll find that I'm talking about something and I realize people have never looked at it like that before. Mm. Um, And I'm trying to think of examples, but uh, I can't really think of examples. But I just find it. It's often the case that people, you know, they they thought America was the pinnacle (laughs) of lifestyle and achievement and humanity and as you know you might say something which doesn't necessarily reflect that well on america or you might say for example they say where was the best place you've ever lived and i'll say lagos and they'll be shocked they'll be like how Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what what do you mean? Yeah, that, that doesn't even you're, make sense you're living to them. I see it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I see it in their face. Mm. You know that. I love it. You yeah. know where were, where were the nicest people you ever met? Mm. Lagos and in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know they it, they're shocked. They expect to hear some sort of war torn mm-hmm. story of woe mm-hmm. that from. <laughs> from the those places um they don't expect the things that i i say because yeah i remember when i went to haiti on a cruise here and um so we went from, from miami to haiti everybody on the cruise was american pretty much and when we got to haiti we were allowed in this fenced off area and you could see local people were waiting by the fence to be allowed in mm-hmm. to the area. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was just such a controlled yeah. area. Yeah. And yet people are going there and they're coming back saying, I've been to Haiti. You <laughs> yeah. know, Haiti was <laughs> wonderful. Um, you were in a controlled right. compound. Right. Right. You were not allowed to wander past the fence right, right. out into the real Haiti. So right. that is a lot of people's experiences of travel when they're American. Well, you know, it's funny
0: because um, I remember one time staying in a... Well, I, anytime I go to the Caribbean and I want some pampering and choose not to stay with family and you go to a resort, it's so funny to me how, how English the resort is right the food is all english the music 90 percent of the people are either german or english yeah it's like and, and and that's the way they like it or same thing was in south africa they had a um can't remember where we were in cape town but you would have thought you were in miami there was nothing that that said that you were in there was nothing culturally that made you feel that you were in another country halfway across the world it was so it's the comfort of home they want a home away from home right yeah they want the feeling yeah. of being just as they are at home but they want the stamp and the passport to say that they've been elsewhere right so we ate yeah. Mexican food and you know really, there weren't even any where we were there weren't even a lot of um you I know South look African look so, local yeah. cuisine it was all kind of westernized chain restaurants I thought what a shame that you would leave yeah your country of origin to go to a foreign land and then you just end up in a regular old you know strip mall
2: listening to both of you yeah I'm like i just you just really made me realize or think is this something that americans do because i don't remember doing that like I, okay we i travel a bit younger and then you travel with friends You kind of bump into locals. might have been, sounds a little maybe dangerous now too. And then people are like, you should come. My cousin has this or my... And you get to see more of what you're Mm -hmm. there to see. We also have more vacations. So, Mm -hmm. you know, any job you start, you have six weeks. So Mm -hmm. most of the time we've been to some place at least for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And you meet somebody. And I'm realizing that while living in the U.S. is where I started doing more of those controlled vacations, which is like a cruise, or a resort, mm-hmm. um, if I compare them to my vacations when I was younger, those were actually more kind of, oh, you know, kind of, not backpack, but more like, let's go, and not with an an actual plan to it, and, but those are, especially my Portugal experience, is one of my best experiences, because we got to make friends with these two guys that worked there, and we met their cousins, and sister, and it became this whole thing that we, got to see inland a bit in portugal because we were on the coast and yeah you just listen to you guys that hit me that you're so right you get a completely different experience a longer period of time plus not such a catered thing like i'm not going to a resort i'm not going on a cruise i'm not going to these five days i've been put together to see this museum or see this whatever statue blah blah and then go back home
0: well there's a I would say that there is a there's an inherent fear of otherness right so if mm. you go into these the dark continents you're i mean you're I, I remember when I went to South Africa the first thing they said when we got my sister and I got there was "Take off your jewelry now we weren't wearing pearls yeah. or you know we weren't wearing expensive jewelry there was nothing lavish or ornate or anything yeah. that was their first thing take off all your jewelry and um you know the hired car will take you where you need to go we were like no we came to see we, we're going to soweto we're, yeah. we're in johannesburg we want to see we want to see the people and be among the people obviously we're not foolish we're not going to go into neighborhoods that you know we don't know where we are we can't get out and, and, yeah. and things like that but we, we we don't want a curated experience. So I also think the tourism industry, and I think it's the same for many places that are deemed dangerous, I think that the, t- the tourism industry um, might coerce uh, hotel staff to also stick to this narrative about what's safe and what's not and to stay within the local area because then they can profit off of the, the visitors, yes. right? So it becomes a thing of globalization and capitalism, and I think it really ruins for the the novice traveler it ruins that experience of actually going to a country and getting a little lost and you know yeah. falling in love with the culture, falling in love with the people now we don 't all get to have vanessa 's experience of you know several years in a place, but I do believe that travelers who are unaccustomed to you know, really traveling, do so in a controlled way because that's the experience is tailored to that because that's all they know. They don't know to backpack and explore and to stay at the hostel and to again get lost and to do all those other things because they've been told, Oh no, when you go to Jamaica, just stay on the resort. Don't go beyond the little shops where they're selling another straw bag, another T shirt, more maracas, another um, you know, tea cozy.
2: skin color thing too because i never felt unsafe because i'm like i'm a black person too but maybe that's just in my hair like maybe you know like white people or other people of color when they go to a place that's predominantly black i feel like that's a stereotype that's been put in a lot of people's head as to where i always felt like it's just other black people
0: right yeah. right what would you say vanessa
1: say that definitely whiter people will stand out because you know your complexion is also money to people to some Mm. people so I do think there could be more of a there could be more of a risk you know I didn't stand out in Nigeria uh, as much so I, I felt like I could blend in more to a crowd, which I, which I liked. But sure, if you were a white person, you might, um, you might be more noticeable and therefore more at risk. Uh, for example, you know, let's say you were a white person driving alone versus a black person driving alone, um, you know, there's more, perhaps a chance that you might be more of a target for kidnapping. But, you know, that's specific to certain countries, uh, Mm -hmm. kidnapping. I mean, in general, I didn't think... I mean, in general, to that thing about the complexion, I do think some of it is in our head Mm -hmm. that we're safer because statistically, I think think Black people face, like, a higher (laughs) rate of crime. Um, So statistically, we're not safe. And one thing which I thought was very, to that point, in Nigeria, although I might might be more of a target being sort of quote-unquote wealthy, it's definitely the poorer people who are the biggest victims of crime. They're actually the biggest victims of kidnapping because um, there's more there's more access to them. And, you know, if you can get, you know, if you can get $50 out of someone, you know, they they will kidnap a driver who's on his way home from work. They'll kidnap, you know, a, a nanny who's on her way home. And they'll, you know, they will force these people to call relatives To send a certain amount of money they know how much they can get from those people Mm. and that happens to to people like that a lot more than it would happen to people you know like myself or like a white person so you know it's uh, it's complicated it's Mm. it's a complicated thing so yeah in some cases your color could make you stand out which could put you more at risk but a lot of it is in the head Mm. It's in one's head how at risk you really are.
0: So I want to ask you about, um, we have to wrap soon. So I'd like to ask you about your children. And it kind of goes back to a question that Norma asked earlier about what aspects of these various cultures beyond food, you answered food, but in the raising of your children who did spend quite a bit of their formative years outside of the U.S., and your own background um, of Caribbean heritage, but also you know English, uh, Britishness is injected into that too. And then your husband's um, American and African uh, ancestry. So how what what so what does this mean for your kids? How they see self? How they talk? Um, what they know? How does this filter through? It? Are there certain things that you do deliberately? Um again, again, maybe it's the food, maybe yeah. it's language. You can you talk about that a little bit?
1: I tell my boys that they're Nigerian. They're Nigerian first and foremost. And that's partly because in according to Nigerian culture, they are Nigerian because you are from where your father's from. And so their fathers, 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 father, they're <laughs> they're all Nigerian. Mm. So they are Nigerian. Uh, according to Nigerian culture and their Nigerian citizens and uh, culturally they're more Nigerian than anything else. Mm. Um, So I want them to really feel good about being Nigerian and to retain the positive feeling they had about being Nigerian in when they were in Nigeria. So for example, uh, last year they went or could have been this year, they went to the Nigerian Day that was in Trafalgar Square, wherever it was, you know, mm-hmm. they went with their dad and um, you know, I make sure we recognize Independence Day. And, you know, we like for their little performances, they'll wear traditional their traditional uh South South clothes, they're South South men, they're Ijo men. So they'll wear their Ijol clothes. And, um, you know, I'll always encourage them to talk about Nigeria. And, um, you know, now that we're here, I've expanded a little more. So they know a little bit more about being Caribbean, Jamaican. They know that mommy's definitely Jamaican. And they they identify with being American. Um, But I feel like the American identity, a lot of that is peer pressure. You know, it's wanting to fit in, it's wanting to assimilate. So I don't make that wrong, but I just always let them know that they are Nigerian and positive things about about being Nigerian. I think it's a, it's a more positive identity for them um, than an American identity or a British identity or even a Caribbean identity because their culture is a lot more complete. Yes, and you know, and you know, they their father, their grandfather is actually a king. Um, He's a king of the place where they're from in Bielsa. Mm. So you know, even though it's you know, it's not doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things, you know. But um, to really hold on to that heritage, um, and you know, think of themselves, you know, as grandchildren of a king um and that's a position of great responsibility and you are the keeper of the culture if you're a traditional king so you have to know your culture um and you have to be proud of it so just i just put all that more onto them it's a bit controversial perhaps but that's how i feel uh for them right now it's um That's how I sort of raised them to be. They're
0: Nigerian boys. And with so much pride. I mean, I don't know a Nigerian (laughs) who's not proud of of, of their ancestry. And to have that lineage is is set them up to success, you know, regardless of school or money or any of that, that that, to have that in their DNA and to know that that's where they're from and that's who they are, um, has set them up. lovely beautifully
2: i think it's it's important i think you you said controversial and in my body was like i don't think so but then i realized you know we're a race kingdom so (laughs) like i feel like sometimes we europeans understand that better than than u.s people so for me it wasn't controversial but also because i'm very much into um preserving the heritage of of our, of our cultures and our lineage compared to what is often, like for me as growing up in the in the Netherlands, is like kind of muddled because there's the Dutch heritage in there. So that you know your line so well, your husband's line and your son's line yeah. so well, it's amazing, like I love it,
1: yeah.
0: hmm hmm So Vanessa. Oh,
1: thank before,
0: you. Yes. Before we wrap, um, so the new book is on the horizon um, I don't know that if you're going to share title with us, but... Um, any... I
1: think the Niger wife provisionally. The Nigeria life? The Niger wife. The Niger, Niger wife is a constitutional yes. term for the foreign wife of a Nigerian man. Yes. The Niger wife.
0: I see. Okay. In the, in the tradition of Buchi Emechita.
1: <laughs> uh yes, a little bit. But, <laughs> I but, guess. But that would be nice to follow in that tradition. <laughs>
0: indeed, indeed, indeed. Any other projects on the horizon?
1: Um, yeah, I'm working on a memoir um with a daughter of a British uh activist from the sixties. Um, so that's quite an exciting project for okay. me. Um and Um, And I'm really interested in that time period generally. So I'm trying to um, work on a a play um, about another character from that time period. I'm really passionate about Black British history. Yeah. You know, like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, what happened. I think that period of time is underwritten about. Right. And... um, you know, we've moved on from the wind rush Now we want to get into the Indeed. whole, you know, the <laughs> yes. recent history. So uh, that's my that's where I'm at right now. That's what I'm passionate about. That's kind of what I'm writing about. Lovely, time- but trying to finish this novel. Ah,
0: wonderful. Well, I mean, you're a mom with two kids, juggling uh, a writing career. So yeah. it's, it's a lot. And um, the fact that you 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 have these um, many pots on the stove or hats on on your head, I suppose, um, shows that you're really grinding out there. So um, congratulations to you on that.
2: I saw that um, you, you sometimes perform your poetry. So now that the world is opening back up, I was actually going to ask you, are you back at performing your poetry? And if so, where? Because oh. I would love to come see you.
1: Oh, well, the thing is, if people join my club on Clubhouse, which yeah. is called The Writer's Way, If people look for The Writer's Way on Clubhouse or they could look for my handle, uh, Venus Rising, or put in Vanessa Walters, they'll find me. Um, I perform, um, I arrange an an open mic once a month. So our next open mic is actually tomorrow at 10 a.m. on Clubhouse. Um, And yeah, so I read, other people read. I do a writing workshop every week on tuesdays on clubhouse so usually the people in my workshop they come to the performance as well and they'll perform too so yeah find me on clubhouse I if will. you want to hear me read or touch base. we can dm each other now and clubhouse is open now to all phone networks so ah. all types of phones so, I can join so you it now. it's a good place to, to it's a good place to all. find me
2: or on twitter Oh, wonderful. What's your Twitter handle? Is that the Venus Rising?
1: Uh, that's at Vanessa Walters. Okay.
0: Okay, well, Vanessa, thank you so much. Thank you. And we're going to give your handle?
2: Yes, I was going to say, like, we'll follow you with uh, our own account, which is our in- Instagram and all other platforms. It's Black Girls with Accents. I want everybody to follow you on Twitter, which is Vanessa Walters and this was just lovely i'm this, yeah very informative i'm so yeah. glad you came on
1: thank you for it yeah lovely talking to you norma and tracy thanks for having me
0: thank you for coming on we appreciate it and be well so everybody thank you thank you for joining us and norma where can they hear us i just said it black girls with accents black girls with
2: accents on Instagram leave your comments and you can email us same handle and honestly same handle on Twitter but I haven't been really active so stick to Instagram
0: (laughs) thanks everyone
1: have a good one bye
0: bye